Hey, what's up guys? It's Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor. I wanted to put this on the front end of this video essay about Andy Stanley for a number of different reasons. The first, I want you to know my goal in doing this video essay, not only this one, but all of them, and it's to put a, together a coherent timeline for you to have on well-known pastors. Obviously, in these videos, I'm going to state the issues I have or the things that I agree with with these pastors, as we do with every pastor we've ever heard of. But the idea here is this is not a hit piece, obviously, even though a lot of people would want it to be that. My goal here is to put together a coherent timeline based on articles and interviews and books and put it all together so that we can know where these pastors came from, why they think the way they do, how they handle ministry situations, and the like. Now, before we get into this, I do want to inform you that I was reached out to by a pastor from North Point Community Church, one of their network churches, but that pastor wished to remain anonymous. But his hope was that he and Andy could view the video to see if it was accurate. I was happy to oblige because I want this video to be as accurate as possible. They did get back to me later that day and told me that there were a number of inaccuracies. There were also copyright issues they felt like uh, they didn't want to pursue but wanted to let me know about. Um, but when I inquired about what the inaccuracies were in the video as far as the facts go, I was told they didn't have time to tell me and they weren't going to tell me. And so what is really I'm left with now is the video that you're going to watch. I feel like it's a solid piece of content. I feel like it's well-researched, it's well put together, um, and I don't know what inaccuracies they could be referring to. In total transparency, down in the description, there are going to be links to every video that I reference here so you can see it in full context if you'd like. There will also be links below for the articles and the books that I'm referring to as well in this video so that you can go and read them in the context that you need to read them in as well. My hope is that you will see what is in this video is fact if it's connected to a fact, again, those links in the description, or if it's my opinion, I think that I've made it really well known that this is more of an opinion than it is a fact. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this video, you find it helpful, and you learn a little bit about Andy Stanley and Charles Stanley that maybe you didn't know before. If you enjoy this video, make sure you leave a like, and if you want to comment in the comment section and discuss the things that are in this video, I would appreciate you doing that. Just make sure you keep everything cordial and Christ-honoring. With that being said, let's get into it. What I've seen in my life over and over and over is that I, as I've asked the question, God, help me to see as you see. I want a biblical view of marriage, a biblical view of my relationship with my kids, my finances, my profession, my ministry. God, I want to I look out into the future and have a mental picture that reflects what you see from my life. As I've begun to look at things from that perspective, decision making gets so much easier and it's so much easier to discern and determine God's will for my life. For the last 25 years, North Point Community Church has basically flown under the radar doctrinally and theologically, not really rocking the boat all that much in those areas. However, within the last few years, Andy Stanley has done quite a bit of rocking. First, to everyone's surprise, saying that the apostles separated the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures and then more recently saying that the Christian faith does not rise or fall on the inerrancy or accuracy of the Christian scriptures. And more recently, in 2022 at a DRIVE conference, saying some very questionable things about the Christian community in its interaction with LGBTQ individuals. 
But the real question is, has he always held these views and now is becoming more vocal about them? Or are there specific instances in his life in which he has molded and shifted and changed? And if so, what were those moments and how did they come about? And out of all of these questions, probably the biggest question is simply this. How would his father, the late Dr. Charles Stanley, feel about the things that Andy is preaching and speaking and teaching now? To answer any of these questions, we have to go pretty far back. Further back than 1995 and the founding of North Point Community Church, further back than Andy Stanley's own birth. In fact, we have to go all the way back to a small town in Virginia that you've likely never heard of called Dry Forks to the place that Dr. Charles Stanley was born. Charles Stanley was born in Dry Forks, Virginia on September 25th, 1932, in the middle of the Great Depression. In June of 1933, his father passed away of kidney failure and Charles was only nine months old. The death of Charles' father meant that his mother, Rebecca, had to get a job and Rebecca moved Charles and herself to Danville, Virginia for work. She was able to eventually get a job at the textile mill and because she was a single mother, Charles was often passed around to different relatives early on and later, when he was older, he was alone by himself often. All of this moving included 16 total moves by the time he was 17. And Rebecca set a tone for Charles during this very uneasy, unrestful time. And the tone was simply this, work hard, stay positive, be in prayer, and often pointed him to the scriptures for his source of hope and stability. When Charles was nine years old, Rebecca remarried so that Charles would have a father figure in his life. However, this plan seemed to backfire as her new husband was often drunk and abusive, both verbally and physically. Charles tells of two separate times in which he got in physical altercations with his stepfather. Now, Charles had attended churches with his mother, but one day at the First Pentecostal Holiness Church of Danville, Virginia, he says he gave his life to Christ. This was in 1944. Now, when Charles was 12 years old, the Pentecostal pastor by the name of Miss Wilson preached a revival message. And at the very end of this, she gave an invitation, an invitation, as we said before, Charles answered. He went to the altar, and while at the altar, Charles felt as if he was called to preach the gospel. This lady came, her name is Mrs. Wilson, and she came and preached a revival. I was 12 years of age. I knew God was trying to say something to me, and and so on this particular Sunday morning, she was preaching. They gave the invitation. I didn't have far to step. I stepped out and knelt down, and next thing I knew, people around me praying. I did ask the Lord to forgive me of my sins and to, to come into my life, and I wanted to be a, a child of God, and I wanted to be a Christian. And so there's no doubt in my mind of what happened. And by the time he was 14, Charles was doing just that. Now, one of the first sermons that Charles preached was at a home church that him and his mother eventually started attending called Moffat Memorial Baptist Church. I preached on the title, Where Art Thou? In Genesis chapter 3, when God came to Adam and asked him, uh, Where are you, Adam? In the King James, Where Art Thou? And I mean, I'd studied all week and prayed. I'd prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, to speak to my heart because it was in my own home church. And I remember I walked up to the pulpit and it just began to flow. And around that same time, Charles was still in high school. He was trying to figure out how to pay for college because his mother and him were both incredibly poor. And to raise some of that money, he decided to get a paper route. A route that earned him a decent amount of money, but not enough money to attend college. 
Charles and his mother prayed that God would provide a way for him to attend college, and that answer came by the way of the pastor of Moffat Memorial Baptist Church, someone by the name of Reverend Hamcock. Through a scholarship that Reverend Hamcock was able to get Charles, he was able to go to the University of Richmond, Virginia for four years on a scholarship. Now, before he went off to college, Charles had another life-changing moment, one that would actually define the rest of his life and ministry. Before he went off to college, Charles had another life-changing experience, a visit with his grandfather by the name of George Washington Stanley. Now, George Washington Stanley was also a pastor. He pastored the Emmanuel Pentecostal Holiness Church located in Dry Forks, Virginia. Charles' grandfather had claimed on a number of occasions that God had spoken directly to him. I was absolutely fascinated that he had heard God speak to him specifically about things, and I wanted him to tell me about it. And so we sat on his screened-in back porch there in Silas City, North Carolina, for a week. And really, all I did was listen and ask him questions, and we just talked every day. Now, on his visit with his grandfather, he claims that his grandfather taught him a number of different things. But one thing in particular stood out, something that Charles would keep with him and say and repeat his entire life. The phrase that he would pass down to his kids and his grandkids and his congregation, which was this. Obey God. Leave all the consequences to him. Now, Charles leaves for college with this desire to know God the way his grandfather did. And while at college and attending Grove Avenue Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia in 1953, Charles is introduced to Anna. After both graduate the University of Richmond in 1954, they both attend Southwest Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas as well. And it is while attending seminary here that they get married on August 6, 1955, at the First Baptist Church in Smithfield, North Carolina, actually his wife's hometown. Right before Charles' last year of seminary, and while visiting her family's cottage on Lake Lure in North Carolina, Charles was approached by someone from Fruitlands Baptist Church. They asked him to come guest preach two Sundays. They didn't tell him, however, that the reason they wanted him to preach there was because their pastor was retiring. But Charles obliges and preaches two Sundays in a row and then is asked to come be their pastor. So they said, well, we had a little meeting and we decided we want to call you as our pastor. Uh, I had another year of seminary. I said, no, 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 I, I couldn't do that, Victor Melton. He said, I'm happy to wait because I believe you're what we need. And after graduating seminary and being ordained, in 1957, Charles and Anna moved to Fruitlands, North Carolina. While the pastor of Fruitland Baptist Church, Charles was asked to teach homiletics and evangelism at the Fruitland Baptist Bible College, a college designed for seasoned pastors that had not had the chance or the means of going off to seminary for a formal education. As Charles's experience grew as a pastor as well as a teacher, so did his family. And on May 16, 1958, Charles Andrew Stanley was born. The Stanleys stayed in Fruitland for two years until Charles was called to Fairborn, Ohio. And in the fall of 1959, they packed up and moved to Fairborn, where Charles took his second pastoral position at the Fairborn Baptist Church, where Andy was only 17 months old. The church was located near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and as such, allowed the church to fluctuate in size and membership. Charles saw this as a way for the church to be a training and sending center for the gospel. While there, the church grew by 300 people in membership and quickly outgrew their building. Not only did the church grow in Fairborn, but so did Charles' and his family once more, and their second child, Rebecca Stanley, was born June 9, 1961. 
1962, Charles went on a mission trip to Haiti, and while on that mission trip, was once asked to preach at First Baptist Church, Miami. They were looking for a new pastor and had heard about what Charles was doing in Fairborn. He felt called to Miami, and on March 18, 1962, Charles submitted his resignation letter to the Fairborn Baptist Church. Charles pastored in Miami for six years, and while there, doing two very notable things in his life. The first being that he baptized Andy at the age of six, and the second, that he attended Luther Rice Seminary and obtained his master's in theology. However, as 1968 neared, he felt the Lord moving him to another church in Florida. And in the spring of 1969, Charles was appointed the pastor of First Baptist Church of Barlow, Florida. While at Barlow, Charles built a strong relationship with both the congregation and the town. Andy seemed to have good memories of this place. Being only 11 at the time, he and his father went on many fishing trips and spent much time together. None of us wanted to leave. We loved Bartow, Florida. We loved the city. We loved the community. Uh, we loved the church. Charles also preached a number of revivals during this time. And while away in Alexandria preaching such a revival, Charles said he felt the Lord say that he was going to move him again. And I was in a revival up there with a friend of mine. And the Lord was really blessing us, but somehow I was just disturbed. And I couldn't figure out why, and I was just asking the Lord to speak to my heart. And it's like the Lord said, I'm going to move you. In the fall of 1969, on September 28th, Charles announced to the congregation that he would be leaving the church to take an assistant pastor position in Atlanta, Georgia. The church he was going to would be First Baptist Atlanta. Part of Charles' duties as associate pastor at First Baptist Church Atlanta was to preach on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. Every service was like a revival. He was a fiery little evangelist, I guess I would say. And services grew when he preached. Now, while he was the associate pastor at the church, he threw himself into his duties. Charles seemed to have a routine that he would do weekly. A routine that Andy and Andy's friend Louis Giglio knew quite well. I remember so many Fridays... Dr. Stanley would come home from work at church, and I'd be spending the night at Andy's house, or we'd be on our way somewhere. This was all through college as well. And Dr. Stanley would come through the door. He would put his coat on the kitchen uh, table. He would disappear for a few minutes. He would come back with casual clothes on, and out the door he would go with a Bible, a yellow legal pad, and a gallon of water. Charles would come home, change clothes, grab a jug of water, a blank notepad, and head out the door. You wouldn't see Charles for another 24 hours, but when he would come back, Louis Giglio says that the water would be gone, the notepad would be full, and those would be the sermons that Charles would preach the upcoming week. At first glance, this seems like a godly practice until you understand that Charles' marriage was falling apart behind the scenes. Later divorce documents from his wife would show that she felt both emotionally and physically neglected and abandoned. This would later lead to a very lengthy divorce, but we'll talk more about that later. It is apparent that this time was very formative in both Andy and Louis' lives. Louis especially seems to hold Charles in high regard, looking at him both as a father figure and a father in the faith. In fact, most of his admiration seems to come from how Charles handled the pastor leaving. You see, Roy McLean, the pastor of First Baptist Atlanta, resigns, and Charles is asked to take over as interim pastor. And as interim pastor, the church begins to grow. While the church was growing, it was obvious that the church politics were at play. One side accused the other of a power grab, the newspapers covered it extensively and seemed to take the sides of those that were opposed to Stanley. And in September of 1971, the board of executives and 40 members of the pulpit committee called to a meeting to dismiss Stanley. 
However, at the same time that meeting was happening, a motion was made to vote Charles in as the new senior pastor. Now, Andy and his sister were not allowed to be at this meeting. In fact, all the meetings up to this had been quite contentious, and Charles and his wife had decided that Andy and his sister needed to stay out of them. But they were kept up to speed by Andy's friend, Louis, which was running back and forth between the main sanctuary and Charles's office. My dad did not want me in the sanctuary during this meeting because it was so contentious. So he asked my sister and me to stay in his office. So Louis literally would go into the sanctuary through a side door and go up in the baptistry and listen, and then come out the side door back to my dad's office to report what was going on. Now after prayerful consideration and being fully persuaded that this is the will of God for my life and the life of this church, I hereby accept the call extended to me on Wednesday evening, September 22nd, 1971, by action of the church in conference to become pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia. Despite the divide in the church, Stanley becomes the pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta in 1971 by a vote that was just over 60%. This is not the end of Stanley's problems, however. So the church cracked apart. And a lot of my friends and their families and my family's friends all left the church. There are some people that are opposed to him and still stayed and caused issues for Charles. In one such of these meetings, a discussion got quite heated and a member punched Stanley. He got kind of worked up and he used some profanity and said, we're not going to have that kind of language. And this gentleman said, you better sit back down or you might get punched. And my dad just stood there and this guy you know, left-handed reached around and hit my dad in the jaw. Well, the whole church erupted. And I, I can remember suddenly I was down fronted and I remember John Glover standing there with me while I was in tears. Um, chaos kind of broke out. In another service on Sunday morning, right as the church was about to enter into their songs, a disgruntled member walked up to the podium and interrupted the service. The disruption actually caused their live broadcast to be cut off. It communicated a couple of things to me. Number one, the church, the local church is worth suffering for. The local church is a big deal. And secondly, um, it in a very um, graphic kind of way underscored the fact that you just do the right thing and you just deal with whatever the consequences are and ultimately the consequences are in God's hands. Overnight, the church that had run upwards of 3,000 people shrunk to 300. This was in part due because half of the deacons had resigned, half of the Sunday school teachers had left, a once massive choir shrunk down to 13 people. Along with this, some of the disgruntled members went to the local TV station and had their live broadcast pulled permanently. In just under a year, the church began to grow again, however. New people began to come, and the church slowly grew back to its previous attendance. As my dad continued to preach, the church filled up and got bigger and bigger and went to two services and then ultimately to three services. And while previous members had had their live broadcast pulled, they were able to get another broadcast put on in 1972 called the Chapel Hour. Not only was it on an Atlanta station, but it was on stations around Atlanta. People also started requesting tapes of Charles's messages, and eventually they made deals with radio stations to play his messages throughout the week. In 1976, Andy Stanley graduates high school from Tucker High School and goes to Georgia State University to major in journalism. Yeah, I was a journalism major at Georgia State University. Okay. Um, I wanted to write. I didn't know about, you know, back then journalism was so different. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was a journalism major, journalism major. And I, I think it really helped me understand journalism in general. People, you know, journalists get a really a bad rap. 
Thank and you. I, and, and, and I always <laughs> respond, I say, look, journalism's like ministry in that it attracts a certain kind of person, a certain kind of personality, mm. and journalists are trained to be critical thinkers, so they're critical because that's the role of journalism in our society, and yeah. we need that. It is later that year, in 1977, while Andy is attending Georgia State University, that Pat Robertson from the Christian Broadcasting Network reaches out to Charles to offer global distribution of his messages. Now, instead of just reaching people in the Atlanta area, Charles Stanley is reaching people around the world. And in this distribution deal, the name of the show changes from the Chapel Hour to what many would come to know it as, as In Touch with Dr. Charles Stanley. Now, In Touch grows exponentially, and from this, in 1979, the In Touch newsletter begins distribution. The success of Charles's ministry actually enables him to team up with other people, such as Dr. Jerry Falwell, to form what is mainly known as the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority had four guiding principles. Moral Majority is not a religious organization. If it were, we could not get 72,000 pastors, which includes uh, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, fundamentalists, etc., together without a blood battle. Uh, the fact is that uh, it's political. It's a very political organization, and one's membership is based upon citizenship in this country and a commitment to a pro-life, pro-traditional family, pro-moral, and pro-American uh, pro uh, position. This partnership will come into more prominence when Charles becomes leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Around this same time, in 1978, Andy says that during his sophomore year of college, the youth pastor at First Baptist Atlanta, somebody by the name of Sid Hopkins, asked Andy to lead a Wednesday night Bible study. And by lead, apparently Sid meant start. In his Communicating for Change book, published in 2006, Andy said that he had never taught or led anything up to this point, but he did know what wouldn't work. For example, Andy says that he knew preaching wouldn't work, teaching for 20 or 30 minutes wouldn't work, a verse-by-verse -verse Bible study wouldn't work, and telling a bunch of stories with an added point at the end wouldn't work as well. So he decided to err on the side of simplicity. He says the first week there were about 20 students that showed up. His plan was to pass out 3x5 cards with a verse on one side and a question printed on the other. The goal was to focus on one point from that verse and then ask the one question. What can I do this week? to practice what this verse says. The method was simple, one point, one question, one application. And it was this, this method that Andy builds and starts to build many lessons that he preaches to this day. Andy said that Sid was concerned about the length of the lesson, but because the group was continued to grow, he just sort of counted it as a success. The success of this Bible study obviously did something to Andy. Andy seems to struggle with the idea of being quote-unquote called into ministry, saying that many of his friends were, but he never quite felt that call. But he was torn. This ministry was growing. So was he called to ministry? Well, my story is I never felt called to ministry. I had friends who, I don't know, they felt called to ministry. They'd go forward during a service. My dad would get them up in front of the church and say, this so-and-so feels called to ministry. And for me, I just loved the local church and loved being involved and volunteering, and I, I, I worked for um, our media ministry for a while, and teaching a Bible study at a, a woman's home that was our first time to be in this home. It was high school students, like 12 high school students. I would drive, and they'd sit on the floor, and I'd play guitar, and I was worship leader, teacher, Everything. the whole thing, yeah, 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 the Pied Piper. And after um, I spoke in her kitchen, standing there, she said, and it was, I was second year of college, she said, um, you really have a gift for communication. Mm. 
And I still remember that. Hmm. And it was, uh, it really was kind of a defining moment. Like, okay, you know, somebody else recognizing yeah. something and speaking into it. Um, I, I needed to hear that. In another one of his books entitled Deep and Wide, which was published in 2012, Andy says that that year during his junior year of college, during a random card ride with his dad, he asked if someone could, quote, volunteer for the ministry. And so one day my dad and I were driving and I said, Dad, um, does a person have to be called to ministry or can they just volunteer? Hmm. And he said, he said, well, I guess you, you could just volunteer. And I said, well, I would like to volunteer for ministry. So that was my big, you know, my big call. No great story, no flashing lights. Charles Stanley apparently thinks about it for a moment and just says, yeah, I guess you could volunteer. This seems to be a moment that Andy kind of just connects the dots. He sees success in ministry. He feels like he could do it. And so he does. And in 1981, after graduating Georgia State University, Andy heads off to Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. During the same time Andy was just getting his start in ministry and higher theological education, his dad's sermons were getting more play across the country. In 1980, KVMV-FM of McAllen, Texas began airing his sermons on their station, giving him further play in different parts of the country. With both the popularity of broadcasts of both his audio and video sermons, the In Touch newsletter became In Touch magazine in 1982. Along with the success of In Touch, First Baptist Atlanta was growing as well. They were buying up much of the property around them because of the growth that was happening at the church. Dr. Stanley's success actually puts him in the running for the president of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1984, which he wins. He also won the next year, in June of 1985. These years were not without issue, however, for Stanley. At this time in the Southern Baptist Convention history, much was being fought over. During his second term especially, Charles Stanley faced two extremes. One extreme that says that he had done nothing but divide the convention, and the other extreme calling him God's messenger for the denomination that had lost its soul. There was a lot of tension between moderates and conservatives within the convention. Issues such as biblical interpretation, abortion, ordination of women, and the literal acceptance of scripture were all things being fought over and discussed. And now God's man, with God's message, out of God's book, for God's people in God's time, and with the love of God in his heart. Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta and the in-house preacher for millions of Southern Baptists through his in-touch television ministries, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Charles Stanley. After graduating Dallas Theological Seminary in 1985 with a Master's of Theology, Andy applies for Baylor University. However, he is turned down. Someone at First Baptist Atlanta hears that Andy is looking for a job and they are without a Director of Student Ministries, a position that Andy comes to temporarily fill but eventually stays. Stays for 10 years, in fact. The first sermon that Andy seems to preach at First Baptist Atlanta is on August 31st, 1985, in that evening. Now, this is something that Andy seems to do very regularly during 1985 and 1986 after his father is elected president for the second time of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, unfortunately, we have no audio or video recordings of any of these sermons that Andy preached, but we do have newspapers announcing what he's going to preach and the sermon titles. And many of these titles seem to follow Andy's one point, one method, one application methodology, using the me, we, God, you, we methodology from his Communicating for Change book, speaking about relevant events and recent events as well. 
For example, Andy preaches a sermon called Homosexuality, Interpretation, or Intention on February 16, 1986, just a week after the Atlanta Pride Parade had went by the church. Now, as with other sermons that Andy preached at First Baptist Atlanta, I can find no record of this sermon or even the outline or what it was about. It seems, though, because he was still on staff at First Baptist Atlanta after he preached this, that this seems to fall in line with what his father had preached about homosexuality up to this point. And this is quite a tense subject, actually. The Pride Parade and First Atlanta Baptist Church, as well as Andy's father specifically, had had a very tense relationship. For example, an article published on January 18, 1986, Charles Stanley is publicly criticized for the comments he made at a meeting held by the Southern Baptist Convention about his belief that AIDS was God's displeasure with the homosexual community. Also, it was a regular occurrence for Charles to dismiss church at the time that the parade was making its way down Peachtree Street each year, so much so that an article from 1992 says that it was a, quote, now traditional face-off between the two groups. Andy also recalls these face-offs in an article from CNN in 2012, and his views on the subject seems to be formed by not only his father's outlook on the event, but also people that he comes to know from the LGBTQ community. But we'll talk more about that later. After Charles Stanley steps away from being president of the Southern Baptist Convention, it gives him more time to be in the pulpit, which means Andy has more time to focus on student ministry and leading Bible studies elsewhere. It is at one of these Bible studies held at Georgia Tech University that he meets his wife, Sandra, and Andy and Sandra are married August 6, 1988. Now, it is around this same time that the church is growing so rapidly that it feels like it needs to buy property elsewhere, a decision highly criticized by those in Atlanta. But on October of 1988, a decision was made to buy an old Avon packing warehouse outside of Atlanta and relocate the church there. They leased the property until 1992 and then were allowed to do some renovations. As I said before, this was met with both joy and criticism. Some claiming that Charles Stanley had made the decision on his own, others standing behind him as their pastor, as well as other churches in the area criticizing First Baptist Atlanta for their past interactions with them, namely a homeless shelter project that they had claimed that First Baptist had abandoned. Nevertheless, First Baptist Church Atlanta begins to make plans to move out to their new facility. And part of this plan included having Andy preach at what was referred to as the, quote, North Campus. Andy says it was never his goal to start a new church. He says that he was very happy helping his father at First Baptist Atlanta in any way he could, as well as being the student youth director. But two years prior to this, he had attended a church growth seminar at Bill Hybels Willow Creek Church. And from that conference had come back on fire to change things, to do something different, but had not had the opportunity to do that yet. And this new warehouse project, this North Campus, was providing something that Andy never thought he would have before, a place to go experiment. And after he did, he did not want to go back. 1991, um, my first trip to Willow Creek Church, working in Southern Baptist Church, a really good Southern Baptist Church, my first tri trip to Willow Creek, Wednesday night, midweek service at Willow, it was their leadership conference, but it was midweek service. Bill Heimel's spoke on leadership. Sorry. And suddenly there was a new category created for me. And I was so screwed up from that moment on. I really was. And I walked around that building and I saw those systems and I saw those volunteers and they had like cool shirts and they had cool music and it was just, I walked around and I thought, God, how do I go 
back to, I mean, I love my church. I work for my dad. I have like 120 people in my youth group. I'm like, wow. And I, I'm walking around that facility, that campus going, gosh, how do I go back? And then I did exactly what Bill told us not to do. Because at the end of the conference, he said, that, he said that, don't go back to your church and try to implement all this stuff. They're going to kick you out. And I thought, yeah, but I know the pastor of my church. His wife's my mama. Come on, they're not going to kick me out. So I went roaring back into my great but somewhat traditional Southern Baptist church with all these new great ideas. And they just said, yeah, whatever, get back over there and use the group and just keep, try to keep it down over there. But you know what? I was so, honestly, I, it's not, I'm not originating this word. This is the word everybody's used. I was really so ruined. I really was. When asked, Andy and a team of young adults relocate to the new facility to begin services while the church sought a buyer for the downtown locations. They had a number of buyers that they thought would possibly buy the properties that they had acquired. Dr. Stanley even announced on Sunday, August 26th, that the church had a buyer for the downtown property. The deacons asked Anley to start holding services at the new building and establish a presence for the future site so that moving wouldn't seem so sudden. Starting services there would also release some of the pressure and tension of having so many people at the downtown location. To do so, however, would mean that they would have to work out some of the logistics such as music. And because the facility would not be able to handle what they typically did at First Baptist Atlanta, such as a choir and an orchestra, they asked Andy Stanley just to start with a band. It's also important to understand that the idea of a, quote, multi-site church wasn't even a concept yet. And embarking on such an endeavor meant that they would have to kind of think outside of the box. And they didn't know what they were doing at all. And about two years later, I had an opportunity to do something different. I grabbed a group of people and the deacon said, Andy, it was kind of funny. They said, now we're going to warehouse out in the suburbs. You know, we're going to move the whole deal out there. We'd like for you to go out there and do like, kind of like an outpost church. We didn't use campuses. They didn't always talk about that back then. It was like a, sort of the outpost. We want, you, we want you to kind of get it started. They said, now, we don't have much money and you're going to be in a warehouse and um, it's going to be kind of raw and, you know, it's going to be cold. And they kept, the more they talked, the more I thought, really? You're kidding. And, and so we went out to this very raw place. And after the first service in this very cold, raw warehouse with, you know, the insulation you can see and scaffolding with speakers sitting on it, we walked out. And I said to Sandra, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. They started with seven people. Julie Arnold, Lance Jones, Rick Holiday, Bill Willis, and Reggie Joyner, as well as Andy and his wife, of course. Andy does give First Baptist Atlanta credit in regards to funding the project while not micromanaging it. They had much freedom to do whatever they wanted. They made it clear from the start they didn't want to redesign an environment for quote, church people. They wanted to create a church that unchurched people would want to attend. And the facilities that they were given to use could hold up to 800 people. And they opened on Easter Sunday, 1992, four years after making the decision to move to the new location. And that first service begins with 700 people. Now, a large portion of these people were from the downtown church, and half of them didn't come back the next week just simply because of how the service was ran. But this did not dissuade the team. In fact, those that left were quickly replaced by the very people Andy and his team wanted to reach anyway, the unchurched people. And by the third week, they were having so many people they had to turn others away. By the second month of holding services, they were closing in on multiple services that held nearly 2,000 people total. And what happens at these services transforms Andy's outlook and his life on everything. 
In fact, the people that were starting this team, minus Reggie Joyner, are still at North Point as of 2012. The plan of, for First Baptist was to ride the wave of success, complete the sale of the property, and combine the two congregations, with the plan probably being that within two years they would have all of this done. Ideally, with the future plan of Dr. Stanley retiring one day and Andy taking the lead. However, six months before the sale of the property was to be done on the downtown location, the buyers walk away. Now, nobody says why the buyers walk away, but it's very likely because of the 1992 recession. Now, an unintended side effect of the property sale falling through is that the North Campus and the Downtown Campus start to become like two separate churches, not two separate locations. And this tension continues to build for about a year. Charles and Andy try to hold the church together, attempting to do so by preaching at each other's campuses. Andy preaching at the Downtown location and Dr. Stanley preaching at the North Campus. This, however, also leads to the comparing of Charles Stanley and Andy Stanley by the congregation. Dr. Stanley seeming like the older, more traditional pastor, and Andy seeming to be the younger, more relevant pastor. And conversely, the downtown church becomes a more older congregation, while the North Campus becomes the place for singles and young families to attend. Both Andy and his father acknowledge that this is happening within the congregation, but despite all of this, hold it together with the bond that they have developed over time. Their mentality being that if they're on the same team and they have each other's backs, that's all that matters. However, that bond was about to be tested by the bomb that was going to be dropped in June of 1993. See, in June of 1993, Andy's mother files for divorce. Now, his mother hadn't lived at the house since the spring of 1992, but the filing of the official divorce caused a lot of issues. Literally everyone had an opinion on this divorce. In fact, an article in the Atlanta Constitution from September 17, 1995 works through Charles's and his wife's relationships in their own words, and it's well worth the read if you have a moment. Andy does the same thing in his book, Deep and Wide. In the book, Andy attempts to dive deeply into both of his parents' past and attempt to demonstrate the reason why they both reacted and didn't react in situations they should have. Now, none of this information mattered, however, to the church or the watching public. The church itself was split. News of a divorce had some calling on Dr. Stanley to resign from First Baptist after months of public battling. With some of the congregants supporting Dr. Stanley as they had seen that Anna hadn't been at the church for years, while others were asking Dr. Stanley to step down for a time and work on his marriage. A marriage that, if it did end in divorce, would mean that he would have to step down permanently from his pastoral position. The local papers are full of additional stories about the divorce. Issue after issue of the local paper of the Atlanta printed opinion piece after opinion piece on the subject. Alongside of this was the growing tension of the two campuses and the growing speculation by some that Andy was trying to use his parents to divorce as a way to take over the church altogether. This all seems to come to a head one day when Andy speaks to his dad about the situation telling his father that he thought he should resign, but then asked the congregation if they wanted to keep him or not. This is all outlined in Andy's book, Deep and Wide. And I do have to say at this point, what Andy says in the book versus what the papers say is a bit different. And we'll see that as we kind of work through them. Now in his book, Andy states that his dad does not remember having this conversation. He states that his dad automatically assumes that Andy is on the side of the people that want him to step down. And the tension continues to grow, and most of the people that had voiced their opinion that Charles should step down start attending Andy's campus, which only further make the rumors seem legitimate. Eventually, during the first week of August of 1995, Andy and Sandra, his wife, made the decision to resign from First Baptist Atlanta. 
And when Andy went to tell Charles this, he says they both cried. It was the death of a dream of both churches, the death of a dream of Andy taking over for Charles when Charles retired, a death of a relationship that they had built over years. Andy, that next Sunday, announces to the North Campus on August 6, 1995, that he would be resigning, making it clear that nobody had fired him, that he wasn't involved in anything that would disqualify him, but he needed to step down. And this is where Andy's book, Deep and Wide, varies from actual newspaper articles of the time. In Andy's book, he tells that the congregation didn't know why he stepped down. However, from a newspaper article from August 14, 1995, it writes that he wrote a letter to the congregation saying that he loved his father, but felt that he should step down as leader of the First Baptist Church. That next Sunday, Charles Stanley announces to his congregation that he would relinquish his administrative duties at the First Baptist Church as soon as September 1st and take a one-month sabbatical to, quote, seek the Lord's divine guidance and the direction for my life. At this same time, the church establishes a committee to recommend church policy on how to deal with deacons and pastors who are separated or divorced from their spouses, as well as authorize a feasibility study to make the North Campus of Dunworthy a separate church. It is at this time that Andy says a group of people approach him asking that if the church was its own separate entity, would he come back? He says in his book Deep and Wide, he refused the offer, feeling that it would be wrong to do so. Now, to say that the fall of 1995 is an incredibly formative year for both Stanleys would be an understatement. Everything that Charles had built over the last 20 years is falling apart. Everything that Andy had hoped for or would be is gone, and now he's started to go to therapy to process through all the drama that started over the last two years. It was during one of these therapy sessions that Andy says that he had a breakthrough. During a therapy session, talking to the counselor about how he felt everyone had been wrong and he had been right in the situation, he says the counselor asked him how he would have reacted when the Apostle Peter denied Jesus. Andy states that he would have, quote, said he was out of the group. But he says in that moment, he realizes that he had been coming at everything from a legalistic standpoint. He didn't want to do that anymore. He said he had preached from a legalistic standpoint, he had led from a legalistic standpoint, he had counseled from a legalistic standpoint, and he didn't want to have that pharisaical heart anymore. A few years after starting North Point Community Church, Andy Stanley would think back to this moment, giving a tip that his therapist had apparently given him and it had helped him a great deal. He says this. I want to give you an exercise for some of you. This will help. Somebody shared this with me. It was very helpful. For some of you, there are relationships that were so painful in the past that it's multitude of things. You, you can't do that sitting here. You can't do that in the car driving home. There were years of things, years of neglect, years of hurt. Maybe you're in a relationship now where it continues to go on. Do you know what you need to do? You need to start making a list. You need to make a list and it needs to be a concrete list where you begin to identify what specifically has been taken from me. What is the debt I am holding over their head? And you need to make a list, keep it on your dresser and every day or for a couple days or three days, you start thinking of stuff and you realize, aha, the reason I'm mad is because they took this, she robbed me of this. The reason I'm mad is he took this. I had to, you know, whatever it is. And you start making a list. You can't do this quick. You need to get it all on paper. And you need to spend enough time and let enough days go by to where the list is complete. And then you need to fold that piece of paper up and put it in an envelope. And you need to draw a big cross on it. And then you need to do something with it as a permanent reminder that in this moment, as of this day, I am canceling all of these debts. I am deciding that you don't owe me anymore. And you know what will happen when you do that? 
You know I'm lying if I said, and you'll never think of it again. (laughs) Oh, you'll think of it again. Those emotions will creep back in. Those memories will creep back in. You'll see her again. You'll see them again. And here's what you do. Just as your mind starts to go down the avenue of all those conversations and you feel what you used to feel, you say to yourself, no, they don't owe me. They don't owe me. They don't owe me. And in that moment, if you would shift your thoughts and focus from that person to the heavenly father who forgave you, In that moment, it can become the trigger response to say, Father, I want to say to you and take this opportunity as I'm reminded of what was owed me to say thank you for forgiving me of what I owed you. This seems to be a real turning point for Andy so that when his dad asks him to have lunch with him, he does. Both men are very angry at one another, but even in their anger, continue to meet together. Now, it is as time goes by and as they continue to meet together that the church actually votes to keep Pastor Stanley as the pastor of First Baptist Church. In fact, on August 1st, 1995, this vote occurs, and the outcome, regardless of the divorce, is that Charles Stanley will remain the pastor. It is during the same meeting that the church voted to not spin off the North Campus and to make it a separate church, but rather to keep it for a future location in which they would move to. It was around this same time that Charles and Andy were having one of their usual dinners, dinners that they had begun to have so that their relationship did not fall apart. And at this point, the relationship had begun to heal. I learned from my dad that family is worth fighting for. At one of these meetings, Charles asked Andy if he had any plans, what were his future goals. And Andy said if he had to do it all over again, he would take the same people that he had started with at the North Campus and start a new church in North of Atlanta. Now, the success of the North Campus had not gone unnoticed. In fact, Charles had been asked a number of times, as well as Andy, if there were any plans to do something similar again. And Charles does give a hint that Andy had plans on planning a church, stating in the Atlanta Constitution on October 2nd, 1995, that Andy was, quote, considering something up Georgia 400. While Andy says he didn't really have a time frame in place, after talking to his father and his father subsequently announcing that Andy planned on doing something and he had his blessing, Andy's phone won't stop ringing off the hook. In an article from November 10th, 1995, Andy says that he was tempted to go to an already established church and become a pastor there, but decided to stay and form a new church like he had when he had launched the North Campus. In that same interview, Andy states that they will be having two planning sessions for the new church on November 19th at the local Cobb Galleria Center, stating that he doesn't think the church will start until later that year, in 1996, and that, when it does start, it will become a Southern Baptist-affiliated church. However, the meeting garners so much success, a total of 1,500 people show up. Those 1,500 people were the core people that had helped start and run the North Campus of First Baptist Atlanta. And not only does the church start sooner than Andy thinks it will, it is not a Southern Baptist affiliated church. There were no signs that Andy was turning back at this point. The fact that 1,500 people had showed up was the only sign that Andy needed to start this church. They were convinced that Atlanta didn't need another church as it had been done before, but rather a church for the disenfranchised and unchurched. Our original vision was to create a church that unchurched people would love to attend. And we decided from day one that life change happens in a circle, not sitting in rows. And as much as I like communicating to full rooms like any communicator, you know, I know personally, life change happens when there's a count. And with this goal in mind, the North Point Community Church was established. 
and they met in the Cobb Galleria Center and offered two services at that location. They meet at the Cobb Galleria Center from 1995 until mid-March 1997 when the Dunwoody Baptist Church allows them to use their building in the evenings to hold three services. Now it is somewhere around this time that they have the opportunity to buy the property that they would eventually build North Point Community Church on. Andy recounts this story during a sermon series called Discovering God's Will in the mid-2000s. Um, we had been going for a little while and we had the opportunity to buy some land for the church. And, and let me get, tell you a little bit about my background. This will help. I grew up, you know, my dad's a pastor. I grew up in, in church world where you never borrowed money, ever. I watched as a kid growing up, I watched my dad um, raise millions of dollars and um, never borrowed a dime. They were buying downtown expensive property all up down around the Fox Theater, just expensive property. Never borrowed a dime, just, just raised money and God was faithful. It was unbelievable. So now I'm, you know, a pastor and we have this opportunity to, um, to get this property, it's 80 something acres for $5.2 million. Okay, and we've been going for about a year as a church. We didn't have 5.2 members. You know, we didn't have any members. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so, the, and, you know, $5.2 million, it was amazing that we even had an opportunity to buy it, much less. So, so the big deal is how are we going to, should we buy this property and, and how are we going to pay for it? And I just felt all this pressure because, and so I can just remember agonizing in prayer going, God, is that the property? Is that the property? Where's $5.2 million going to come? And we're going to have to borrow money. And I've never seen borrow money borrowed. And are you going to bless this? And people are saying, if you borrow that money, then the rest of your life, you're going to be raising money and have giant thermometers and have to beg for money. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. And I, I, I mean, I'm making it sound funny. But honestly, I will, you can ask Sandra, I was so stressed that I'm going, I was saying, God, I don't care. If you just show me, I'll, you know, I'll charge hell with a water pistol if I know you've told me the right thing to do. But I don't know the answer. I just don't know. And I talked to this group or here. Anyway, so finally, it's a, it's a long story. Finally, um, I decided what I had to do. Number one, I'm in an arena where I'm way over my head. I don't know anything about real estate. You know, I'm not a debt equity ratio kind of guy. You know, that's just not my world. And so I realized I'm over my head. And I'm going to have to trust the wisdom of some other people. Finally, after meetings and prayers, there was consensus. We need to borrow, we need to get the property, whatever it takes. I can remember the night walking out of there to where it was just like, ah, the burden was lifted. And it wasn't because God spoke to me in a vision. I wish I prayed for that or showed me a verse. It's because God spoke through a group of older, wiser fellows. They meet in the Dunwoody Baptist Church from March 1997 until September 27, 1998, when the building project was completed and they move into their new facilities, the facilities of which they're located now. During that same Discovering God's Will sermon, Andy talks about the opportunities that he had been given right before the church officially launched in its new location, speaking about a radio ministry, and then really thinking about what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do currently with North Point Community Church, stating this. About two years ago, the church was about to move into our campus, and there's a lot going on. So people approached me about starting a radio ministry. They said, you need to be on radio, and we're going to do this, and we'll start this organization, and we'll raise this money, and on and on and on. I thought, well, you know, maybe we should do that. And, you know, I, man, but, and so we're, Sandra and I are talking about it. We're praying about it. And, you know, it's just sort of, you know, I don't know, God, again, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I was having breakfast with a friend named Joel, Joel Manby. Some of you may know Joel. So I shared this. I said, Joel, here's an opportunity. We're trying to figure out what to do. And, um, and I'm, you know, explaining. And halfway through the conversation, he says, 
Why would you want to do that? You know what? I never thought of that. You know what I said to him? I said, Joel, the truth is I don't really want to do that. He says, you don't have any business doing that. He says, you've got your family. You've got the church. It's just getting started. You've got a good schedule. That's just going to take more time away from something. What are you willing to give up? I'm telling you, as soon as he asked that question, it's like the cloud lifted and the curtain parted. And I thought, that's not what I need to do. And Andy continues this type of mindset all through his ministry, all the way up till today. Andy is very driven, very focused, very purposeful in the things that he does. So whether it's a sermon series that he's going to preach or a position that he needs to hire for, or even on a more personal level, fostering children in his own home or being generous with his money, everything is well thought out, purposeful, and planned. He does this for a reason. He doesn't want to be distracted by outside events when he could be putting all of that time and energy and effort into something purposeful. And this is why I think North Point grows as it does in the early years. North Point Community Church had grown exponentially in as little of a time as three years. But now that they were in a more established facility and their own building, they grow even quicker. It was around this exact same time in 1999 that Andy Stanley, along with other well-known names of Christianity at the time, like John Maxwell, start a well-known conference called the Catalyst Conference, a conference designed for next generation church leaders, a conference designed to train up church leaders how to lead well in the next generation. Along with the success of Catalyst and some of the books that Andy was writing, North Point Church actually spins off a model that would be considered a franchise type model for churches, with Buckhead Church being the first of this sort of franchise model. The idea of this model is simply this. Churches take everything that North Point does well and does the exact same thing. Each church has their own team of leaders that they do the day-to-day administrative operations with, as well as a lead pastor that acts as the campus pastor. The biggest difference of this model is that instead of the campus pastor preaching each week, whatever Andy Stanley is preaching on that week is then broadcast at the sister church. The easiest way to think about it is like a fast food franchise, different locations with the exact same food. The idea is to copy and paste the one way that North Point judges their services, providing the same leadership materials, children's ministries, worship services, counseling materials to every church within that network, and then broadcast the sermon from the quote mother church, which would be North Point Community Church. It's important to realize that the network churches, the ones we just talked about, are different than partner churches. In fact, the Irresistible Church website boasts 150 plus church partners that partner with North Point Community Church weekly. Now, obviously, this looks different in every location. Some of these churches don't use hardly any of North Point sermons or resources and sort of pick and choose what they want, while others are almost a copy-paste of the North Point network churches themselves, using the website design, the sermons, and some of the other things they choose to include on their site from North Point Community Church. The question is, in this entire model, is, is it a biblical model we see in Scripture? Now, I'll let you work that out on your own, as you work through the scriptures, but regardless of your answer, it has definitely worked for North Point Church and has allowed them to become one of the fastest growing largest churches in North America. Now, the first of these churches added to the North Point Community Network, as I mentioned before, was Buckhead Church, and it was added in 2001. The second church added to the North Point Community Network was Browns Bridge Community Church, and it was added in 2006. As the church continued to grow, so did the issues Andy had to face. With the amount of growth that North Point was experiencing and the number of churches it was adding, it meant that there were a number of, quote, on-the-ground issues that Andy had to deal with with people interacting with one another. In a 2012 sermon series called Christian, an eight-part sermon series on faith, 
In a sermon called When Gracie Met Truthy, Andy tells a story that would have taken place around this time in 2006. And within the sermon says that this type of situation helped them define how they wanted to operate as a church. He goes on to tell a story about a couple that was divorced because of an extramarital affair. An affair that ended in what he jokingly calls a, quote, modern family but then seriously uses it as an example of what the church should look like. You know, you're, you're trying to figure this out and it's messy, it's messy. And so consequently, in a network of churches as large as ours, and we have, you know, again, a bunch of churches in Atlanta and around the country, we run into these situations all the time. I just want to tell you, to tell you one, one story. Here's, here's where we land. Years ago, when we first started the church, I met a family in our children's ministry, a husband and wife and their elementary school age daughter. And uh, we got to be friends and meal together. I did a couple of funerals for um, parents and just, you know, not super best friends, but knew them, tracked with them, knew what's going on, see them at church. About five, five and a half years ago, she discovers that he's in a relationship with another guy. And it's devastating, of course. And it breaks her heart. And there's, you know, there's just the deceit and all the stuff that goes with, with those kinds of things. And of course, confusing for their daughter and embarrassing. And it's just, it's just, it's just a big mess. So a single attorney worked this out and in six months, they're divorced. And then some months after the divorce was finalized, he shows up here at our North Point campus with his partner and she's here. She's like you would feel if it was you or your sister or your daughter. It's like, and she got in his face and she said, look, this is my church. You know, you cause this problem. You go to any church you want to in Atlanta, but you can't come to, this is my church. I need a worship free, I need a trauma free zone. And so you go somewhere else. And basically she kicked him and his partner out of our church. And so they left. Well, as you know, we have lots of churches in the city of Atlanta. And as it turned out, they decided to attend a different one of our churches. And it was the one that was closest to them. So they attended Buckhead Church. If I remember this right, the very first Sunday they showed up at Buckhead Church was our strategic service Sunday. And in strategic service Sunday, we spend the entire time recruiting people to volunteer. And I, you know, I cast a big vision and you know, we're gonna change the world, come help us change the world. And so my friend's partner, said, hey, I like this church. I think we should get involved. So on the first Sunday they're there, they go down and sign up to, to be in strategic service and join a host team, one of our guest services teams. Well, a few weeks go by and I'm checking on her. How's it going? And she said, that's good. You know, and we talked about the, you know, she kicked him out of the church and how's that going, you know? And, and she said, well, the, the good news, I guess, is that they're back in church. I said, oh, great, where? She said, they're going to Buckhead Church. She said, and then she kind of chuckled. And she said, not only that, they're serving. I said, really? She goes, yeah, they joined a host team. Now, what I knew, and I double checked with her to make sure I was correct, was the last I, where we had left off was he, my friend's partner, and he's a friend now, but back then not so much. My friend's partner was still married. And so I said to her, I said, now, he's still married, right? And she said, yeah, the divorce is taking longer than they expect. It's kind of getting dragged out. So I called my buddy. I said, okay, I know things have been awkward, you know, between us, but look, uh, and, and I'm glad you're in church. That's a good thing. And I'm glad you're at one of our churches. You know, that's a good thing. But your partner, he's, he's still married. So see, this is just good old fashioned adultery. Like you're in a sexual relationship with someone else's 
husband. Uh, you know, it was, you know, I've never said that before. But anyway, so I said, so you can't be on a guest services team, okay? This is, you're just living in, you know, this is, this is clear, okay? You can't do this. And he said, well, my partner, he's gonna be really upset about this because he loved the church and he loved the fact that we were gonna be able to connect. I said, well, you know what? I'll, I'll talk to you if you guys wanna come in. I'll, I'll talk to you about this. So they came in to see me. It was really, really awkward and bad. And to, to our, you know, to my friends, partner's defense, it's because they showed up at Buckhead Church and they never saw me down there except on a screen. And so he said, how can you kick me off out of a church? You're not even the pastor there. I'm like, well, you're right. So I did what every great leader does. I said, let me give you the name and number of the pastor at Buckhead Church and you can call him and talk to him about this. All of our churches have different pastors. And so I gave him Jeff Henderson's name and I called Jeff and said, someone's gonna call you. It might be... <laughs> disputatious. And so to their credit, to their credit, because who's got time for this? They talked to Jeff and Jeff said, as long, you know, you're married. This is just adultery. You can't serve on a guest services team. And so understandably, they um, left the church. And you know what? If I were them and saw the world the way they saw it at the time, I would leave too. Who wants to go to a church that says, oh, we want you to come help us. Oh, you can't help us. So they left the church. And that was the end of that. So from time to time, I would check in with his ex-wife, you know, how's it going? How, you know, how are things going? And I noticed something interesting as time went by, and this is over the course of about three years. As time went by, she began to significantly soften toward her ex-husband and his partner. And then eventually, you know, she began to date a guy named Doug, who's a great guy. And, and so all of a sudden there's another guy in the scene. Well, who, who, who are you, you know, who's coming over? Well, you know, my boyfriend, my daughter, my ex-husband <laughs> and his partner. I'm like, wow, that's, that's quite remarkable. There's another th interesting thing happened. I was talking to her one afternoon and I was telling her about a special service we were have coming up. And she said, you know what? I think my ex-husband and his partner, of course she said their names, would enjoy that. I think I'm gonna invite them to church. Now this is the woman who kicked them out of our church. And so she said, I, I'm gonna invite them to tell them they should go to Buckhead Church, just, just experience all that. I said, great. So the next Sunday, they showed up to the church that I had made them feel so awkward about attending. And I would have felt awkward too, but they came back anyway. And as I monitored and asked lots of questions, there was a constant moving together. And I, I was just astounded. And then this story ends with this past Christmas. I got a call about a week before Christmas. We had lots of extra Christmas services and you know, people cra going crazy and everywhere. And, and they had been attending, the, his, her ex-wife and his partner had been attending Buck, Buckhead Church ever since you know, she invited him back to that service. And she said, we wanna all come to Christmas service together. Would you save us some seats? And so I said, of course. And so I asked George, George helps us here at our North Point campus save seats. And I, I said, George, I need, I need six seats. I said, well, I'll ask her first. I said, who's coming? She said, well, um, my boyfriend, his daughter, me, my daughter, my ex-husband and his partner, I need six seats. And so, you know, halfway in our first Christmas carol, I'm sitting here, I'm standing here in my corner chair, singing, looking up at the screen. And I look across the aisle and about four people down are my six friends all singing Christmas carols together on the front row. And the only thing I could think was modern family. <laughs> now that's not the first thing I thought. You just had to break the tension sometimes. And here's what I thought literally. I thought, 
There it is. The marvelous, glorious, messy, pain-filled, we'll get through this somehow. I'm not gonna be that woman. It's our daughter, microcosm of the church. There it is. Truth with all its painful ramifications and grace with all of its healing power. While this is only one clip from one sermon series, it does demonstrate in Andy's own words not only where they stand, but an example of what they think the church should look like. It also demonstrates that Andy's views had changed since the sermon he preached back in 1986 on homosexuality. His views seemed to further change when he sent a video from a well-known atheist named Sam Harris. Just four years later, Andy says he sees this video, a video that completely changes how he approaches the presentation style and focus of his sermons. So about nine years ago, um, I was sitting at home and I'm watching a YouTube video of Sam Harris. Some of you know who Sam Harris is, famous atheist, neuroscientist. Um, and I'm listening to this, I'm watching this video, somebody told me to watch, and he's at a university setting and he is just completely dismantling the Bible. Now this, this link between religion and morality that we really is everywhere in our culture and which, which really underwrites religious moderation and, and religious fundamentalism to a significant degree. This idea that without religion, something fundamental would be lost to us in moral terms. This really is questionable when you look at the books. The truth is that not even, just to, to speak specifically of the Bible for a moment, not even an Orthodox Jew or a fundamentalist Christian can take God at his word, given how sadistic God is in, in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus. He's doing all the normal stuff that skeptics have done forever. And as I was watching, something dawned on me that I'd never thought about before that has rocked my world and, and changed the way I preach and teach. I made the change almost immediately. It, it dawned on me that Sam Harris shared an assumption with everybody in the room that was a skeptic or an atheist or an agnostic. Um, and the, uh, it's an assumption that I was raised on, and it's an assumption that most of you were raised on. In fact, when I state this, the assumption, part of your brain will go, well, that can't be true, and part of you will feel nervous that I'm saying it's not true. And the assumption is simply this, that the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith. And that as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. That was the assumption he, he leveraged all of his skepticism off of, and it's an assumption that most of the people in most of our churches hold to, even though they've never thought about it because no one's ever said it like that. The assumption being that as the Bible goes, so goes the Christian faith. So as Sam Harris dismantles the Bible and all confidence in the Bible, he's dismantling Christianity in his mind and in the minds of the people in the audience. As Andy watches the video, he watched Sam Harris dismantle the scriptures and is convinced that it's time to rethink how we approach the scriptures, saying that one must tether the faith of Christianity to the resurrection of Christ rather than the authority, inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of scripture, teaching others to do the same as well. I watched this, I thought, this is terrible, and someone needs to do something, and I looked around, and it was just me. So I thought, I, this, is, this is like a big deal, because he does what skeptics have done forever. He goes after the Bible. And so he does what skeptics have done for generations. He ties the, the not to use the word inerrancy, but the infallibility or the credibility of the Bible to the Christian faith. And as the Christian faith goes, so goes, excuse me, as the Bible goes, so goes Christian faith. I mean, if, if something in the Bible isn't true, this is simple. If something in the Bible isn't true, then the Bible isn't true. If something in the Bible isn't true, you can't say the Bible's true. And if the Bible isn't true, in the minds of just about everybody, goodbye, 
Christianity. That has to change. And the thing that makes this so compelling, and the reason we have to do something, I'm absolutely convinced, is because this generation of skeptics has something previous generations did not have. An all-access pass to every single person in your church 24 hours a day. Once upon a time, you had to buy a ticket and go to a debate to hear somebody like him talk. Obviously, no more. Of course, I know you know this, but I just want this to wait to settle in on you that every single student, every single person in your church can find out what else is in the Bible and what do I mean by what else? All the parts you don't preach and teach about and the parts you won't preach and teach about because you can't find any application there. You're never gonna get there. And if you go verse by verse through the Bible, you know, you, you'll, you'll never make it to Jesus. From this point on, Andy's focus on preaching is not that the Bible says so, but rather Paul says or Luke records. And this type of teaching starts to raise many questions, mainly in recent days, about what Andy believes in about Scripture as well as the application of Scripture. But Andy isn't caught off guard by this criticism. He saw his dad take criticism and he learned from watching his father. Well, the good news is I grew up with a dad that received so much criticism. Um, yeah, I saw him go through so many things. Um, and, you know, his, his motto is, you know, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Mm. Obey God, leave all the consequences to him. And so, um, you know, he listens and he, you know, listens, you know, he's somewhat of a consensus builder when it comes to decisions. Mm. But when he's sure this is what God wants him to do, then you just go. And, I, you know, I picked up a, a little bit on that. And so when I'm confident this is what we need to do, um, the criticism's interesting. I always learn from it. I always try to respond to my critics. So yeah, that's just part of it. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing for me, as long as I'm being criticized by Christians, um, I'm okay with that. I don't want to ever lose my influence with people outside the faith. Anytime some sort of pushback came, Charles simply said, I'm going to let God deal with the consequences. Regardless, whatever change Andy implements doesn't seem to slow down North Point's growth, despite any of the backlash from outside of the church. In fact, North Point Church adds Woodstock Community Church into their network of churches in 2011, and then shortly after adds Gwinnett Community Church that same year. Then, in 2014, North Point welcomes Decatur City Church into their network and Hamilton Mill Church into their network in 2019. Nothing seems to be able to slow down the growth of North Point Community Church. And in addition to COVID in 2020, North Point Community Church lastly adds East Cobb Church into the North Point Community Network. 2020 brought forth quite a few revelations. One such revelation was how Andy Stanley viewed the church and its operational need. Actually, 2020 didn't necessarily reveal this as much as it put into play what Andy Stanley already thought about brick and mortar churches. In 2019, at his talk at Dallas Theological Seminary, Andy actually states that brick and mortar churches are only really viable simply because of the children's ministry. Um, so why would I actually show up at brick and mortar church? In fact, I tell pastors all the time, so I should tell you, brick and mortar, the only reason you need brick and mortar anymore really is for children's ministry, not for adult ministry. Once upon a time, you brought your kids and put them in the nursery so you could go hear the preacher, and now there's no need to go hear the preacher. It's just about children's ministry, which should make you very nervous, which is good. You should be nervous. Um, the world's changing. In fact, people don't even need to come there to watch sermons anymore because we can all view them on our phone. Though Andy Stanley catches quite a bit of flack from others within the evangelical church for closing his church for an extended amount of time, it's really just an outplaying of the logical conclusion that he was already working with. 
If you can get sermons on your phone or on your computer, what is the necessity of actually attending a local church? And while this may be seen as a change in direction for Stanley, it's actually a continuation of what he grew up with. His father was known for being the pastor in people's homes through his radio and broadcast ministries. So it seems as if Andy is really just working with a more updated modern model of the same concept. A living out of the model that he's talked about previously in this video. The community is built in circles, not in rows. And when you think about that, the logical outcome is that a one-hour service on Sunday morning isn't the prime example of that, but rather a church that serves together, something that Andy brings up in an interview with CNN. We don't have to go to church, so we have chosen to bring church to the people in our community, actually people all over the world, and uh, this is a temporary shutdown, but the church isn't shut down. It's just our Sunday morning services. So this really was about the health of our congregation, but not just our congregation. This was about the health of our entire community. Well, ch a church is an essential service, but a one hour worship service with hundreds of people, or in our case, thousands of people all crammed into a room is not an essential service. In fact, and we're not the only church doing this. Lots mm. of large churches have are very outward facing. So we're not closed, but a one hour worship service, hey, we can do that at home, and as everybody listening understands, we can worship wherever we choose to worship. So this is, you know, uh, the worship service is one facet of a healthy church, and we've just decided to suspend that one facet of our local churches. So in regards to his view on the local church, it's not that his view has shifted. Rather, it has met its logical outcome. He is now able to get his messages in far more hands and homes than his father was ever able to do via the power of the internet and podcasts. There does seem to be two views, however, that have seemed to change. The first is going to be his methodology in preaching. However, this doesn't seem to be just a result of the Sam Harris video, but also because it seems as if Andy is attempting to stay true yet again to his mission of making a church for unchurched people. Shifting his methods as needed to do so, Andy adapts his language in order to stay true and engage with the audience he's trying to reach. He mentions this in an interview with Russell Moore. said a couple of years ago, that we shouldn't say the Bible says. What do you mean when you say we, we shouldn't say the Bible says, is it? Well, yeah, no, that's, I'm glad you asked that. The reason I encourage pastors not to say the Bible says, the scripture teaches those things. If, it, if it's a bunch of Christians and it's a bunch of people who take the Bible seriously, we're good to go. And for generations in our culture, we got by with it. But it's, I've just learned through experience I have removed an unnecessary obstacle when I say to, a, to not just non-Christians, but Christians who are having doubts about the scripture perhaps. When I say, it's just a more direct route to say, Jesus taught. The Apostle Paul, who by the way used to hate Christians. Anybody here hate Christians? You love the Apostle Paul, he hated Christians. I think it is an easier on-ramp for people who are distant, distancing, doubting, to start with the authority of the, of the author than to start with the Bible. And the other reason is this, and, and you know this, it's not what the Bible says that's the issue, it's what else the Bible says. And again, when you're dealing with secular people, as soon as you say the Bible, everybody now knows all the problems with the Bible. And when I say problems, the problems in terms of the culture's view of the Bible, in terms of six day creation, no geological evidence for a worldwide flood, there's no evidence for the Exodus, there's all kinds of things that people can poke at, poke at, poke at. And when, we dis when they in their minds can discredit parts, it discredits the whole. This is a good place to dive in and actually look at Andy Stanley's preaching and how it's changed over time. The best way to do this is to actually compare four messages from the year 2000 with four messages from the year 2023. 
The first set of messages was preached only five years after North Point Community Church had started, in the year 2000. The series name was Discovering God's Will, and in this series, Andy Stanley brought forth four different sermons. In his first sermon, he basically sets the ground rules for the next three, saying that God has providential will and moral will. Both of these wills can be seen throughout the scriptures, and during this sermon, he points to a number of different scriptures within the Old and New Testament. In the second sermon of this series, he talks about godly counsel and how often God's will can be discovered through the wise and godly people that God has put in our life. Again, offering a lot of verses to back that up. In the third sermon of this series, Andy talks about how God's word has been given to the believers so that we can know what his will is and we can discern what we're supposed to do in it, referring to the scriptures as God's word a number of times. In the last sermon of this series, Andy talks about God's vision for us, the idea that we can find out God's will when we know his providential will and his moral will and follow the things that he's laid out in scripture, both from the Old and New Testament. This is in stark contrast to his most recent series in 2023, a series he's still working through, called The Fundamentalist. The purpose of this series, Andy says, is to get down to the bare bones of what Christians must believe in order to be Christian. Preaching the first sermon entitled Hang On to Baby Jesus, in which he talks about a singular passage out of Matthew chapter 16 between Peter and Christ, saying that the first major fundamental thing that one must believe to be Christian is that Jesus is the Christ, the last king that God has sent, his only son. In the second sermon, entitled The Shadowcaster, Andy preaches out of John chapter 14, in which Jesus explains that if they've seen him, they've seen the Father. Andy's point being that Jesus is the example of God. What Jesus does is who God is. Then, in the third sermon, covering sin, specifically pointing to the greatest commandment found in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Essentially defining sin not as disobedience to God or his law, but rather sin is defined as not loving your neighbor. Essentially asking them, if it harms another person, it's sin. If it's not good for you, no can do. And if it's not good for them, it should be condemned. There are a few differences in these series spread across 23 years. The first is that in the first series back in 2000, there are so many Bible references. Andy's entire case is built upon the scriptures, and time and time again, he points believers and non-believers to the scriptures, encouraging both to read them and learn about who God is, and after learning about him, to follow him. This is in sharp contrast to the 2023 series in which Andy spends a great deal of his opening sections almost urging people to question the scriptures, using language that's incredibly confusing without clarifying it, and not really speaking of the scriptures as authoritative for life and practice of the believers or pointing unbelievers to the scriptures that tell the story leading up to Jesus. He does often tell people that if what the Gospels are saying is true, they should consider it and change their life to follow it. This, however, is in sharp contrast to what we see in 2000, in which Andy is assuming the scriptures are good for life and practice and authoritative to know who God is and how to live rightly. And I can only assume all of this has changed and pivoted on what we've talked about before, that video from Sam Harris. And these implications go far deeper than just a change in how we talk about the Bible. They have implications for every part of the believer's life. 
There's one thing that I think I need to be really clear about before we close out this section. If you were to compare the old sermons from the 2000 and the new sermons from 2023, what you're going to find is the way he speaks of the scriptures is very different. Ask the question, God, I want to know your ways. I want to know your thoughts. Show me, help me discover and root out and dig out the principles, the way you have put this world together so that I can begin to see as you see, think as you think, and develop my ways in accordance with yours. That's what a principle is. Let me give you some examples to make sure we're all on the same page. Sometimes principles are stated. Let me read you a couple of examples and you've heard most of these. Here's some stated principles. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. In other words, whatever you put into something, you can expect to get something similar out. You reap what you sow. Now, maybe you're not a Christian or not a religious person and you think, well, I knew that. I mean, that's true whether it's in the Bible or not. I mean, I, I, don't, I knew that. And I don't know anything about the Bible. Of course, you reap what you sow. Everybody, it's just sort of a universal principle. Everybody knows that. Where do you think that came from? Why is that true? Why is that an indisputable law that's both in nature and in relationships? Where, where did that come from? It came from God. God set that in motion. That's the way God works. In the 2000s, the scriptures are the foundation of all that he speaks about. Whether it be for believers or unbelievers, he points everyone to them for life and practice. In 2023, that has shifted. His presentation style is vastly different, and it does call into question by the words he uses if he actually thinks unbelievers should find life and practical applications in the scriptures. I'd said, it's how your behavior and mine impacts other people. So this is essential. It's fundamental that we view sin the way our Savior views sin. Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or others, whether it shows up on a sin list or not, whether it appears in our Bible or not. So I wanna ask you a terrifying question. And then I'm gonna ask you to respond, which is gonna be even more terrifying. So don't tune out or go anywhere, okay? Here's the question. Are you harming you or others? Stop it. In 2023, that has completely shifted. And the language that Andy uses in regards to the scriptures and everything they talk about is much different. And this is where a majority of the questions about Andy's view of scripture come into play. Andy's primary focus now undoubtedly is the resurrection. He talks about it constantly, as he should, but then it calls into question about his view on the rest of the scriptures. In the 2000s, he referred often to the Old Testament, but now rarely does, even though the gospel writers that he's quoting often point back to them. And so there's a lot of confusion here, confusion that we don't have a lot of clarity on, but this is something that Andy's not unaware of. In fact, he's used to being misunderstood, as he says here. And one of the things that we are commonly criticized for and misunderstood for is our approach to church and cultural engagement and church being not just the preaching part, but the whole thing. And if um, I, I think of a sermon series, like a three and a half hour sermon, so nobody wants to sit through a three and a half hour sermon. So we spread it out over a bunch of weeks. So if you show up at the introduction week, you might think, do they use the Bible? Mm. If you show up at the last week, you might think, do they always have people stand up and pray to receive Christ? So you, you, ha you have to come for about six weeks. 
The issue with this approach is that it's obviously confusing. Andy Stanley admits this himself. Depending on what service you come to, you may be confused about what the church actually does and why they do it. According to Andy himself, depending on which service you come to, you may not even think they use the Bible. And so when he says that the apostles unhitched the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, or that the Bible says it's not an adequate starting or returning point for many adults, the questions that are asked are reasonable. And it's here that we see the second thing that Andy Stanley seems to have shifted his opinion on, the topic of LGBTQ plus relationships, and more specifically, the relation to Christianity. Quickly, I want to introduce you to Greg and Lynn McDonald who attend one of our churches. This is their story, and they were so gracious to share their story with us on video. Now, this is emotional. Uh, you, in fact, if you so far have disagreed with everything I've said, you're gonna feel like this is cheating, and there you go, Andy, you're not giving a scripture. Last night, you gave us a lot of scripture. Now you're gonna tell us a bunch of stories. Okay, I, I understand that. We're, I'm gonna to get to that in just a minute. But this is the reality for those of us who are in ministry. Again, if we're all just public speakers running around or you could just bloggers and you know, it would be easy. But we're dealing with real people and real relationships and, and real people that we love. So we have to figure this out. It is not political for me. It is not political for you, is it? It is relational because we're in ministry and because we've learned to distinguish between theology and ministry, we can figure this out. Not only does this show us Andy Stanley's view on the local church and who can serve and who cannot serve within it, but it also gives us some indicators of what his position may be on the topic. Now, I think this is a good place to interject that an employee for North Point Community Churches that wish to remain anonymous did reach out and say that the church has, like many churches do, a family ministry agreement. This agreement recognizes God's design for marriage. With the FMA and the church bylaws, they explicitly say you cannot condone, nor pursue, nor be involved in a same-sex attracted relationship. Now, I can't find nor was I provided documentation on either one of these policies or agreements. However, I was assured by this anonymous source that they have denied service opportunities as well as marriages because of both of these policies. So it is interesting that the Unconditional Conference put up by Embracing the Journey is a conference that's being held at North Point. The Unconditional Conference very website says that they are inviting you to the conference for a two-day premiere event for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. It goes on to say that you will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind. We deeply desire this time will bring about healing and restoration. Finishing with, no matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle. Out of all of the speakers that will be giving presentations at the conference, four of those speakers are on the North Point Community Church staff. Two of the most notable names are Andy Stanley himself, as well as his care ministry director, Debbie Causey. What's further concerning is just a small amount of research into the other people that will be speaking at the conference that are not employed by North Point Community Church will show you that they are LGBTQ affirming. In fact, many of them are contenders for LGBTQ inclusion within the local church body, holding to a theology that homosexuality is an orientation that can be faithfully lived out in one's Christian walk. Not a walk of repentance or freedom from sin or even a life of celibacy lived in submission to Christ, 
but rather a walk that can be faithfully lived out within an LGBTQ lifestyle. All of this seems to be smaller pieces to a larger puzzle, so that when we all saw that clip go viral of Andy Stanley at the Drive conference in 22 talking about LGBTQ+, we were all surprised. However, as the other things we've talked about, this seems to be more of a logical conclusion and a position that he may hold. He hasn't clarified, so we're not really that sure. To add a bit to this confusion, North Point Community Church, under their care ministry led by Debbie Causey, also has something called Parent Connect. Parent Connect is very closely tied to the Embrace the Journey conference, specifically existing for parents within North Point that have LGBTQ plus identifying children. It's about how your Parent Connect group is structured. So we have several groups that meet once a month. Um, and then once a quarter, we all come together at um, our main campus. We have a camp, a church that has about eight campuses. And so we all come together uh, at one of the campuses and hear from a speaker. Um, we got to hear from Mama Tammy in October, and that was so much fun. Uh, she was from the show Queer Eye, if you're not familiar. It's a great episode about the church um, and uh, the LGBT community. Um, and so we meet once a month as groups and once a quarter in homes and we cover a topic that's in our uh, conversation guide. It might be grief, like we talked about today, safety, um, giving up your rights as parents. Um, it might be about acceptance. It could be about all different kinds of things. Uh, anger, um, grace, your purpose and all of this, you know, Parent Connects. Uh, two goals is to love your kid well and to find out where God has you on the journey. So anything that has to do with that. We'll sometimes talk about theology, but it's not for us to um, tell people what their theology should be, but to seek a journey in what their theology is going to be. However, this is not a cares ministry in order to help the parents walk faithfully with their children, pointing them to repentance in Christ, but rather this is a ministry to help parents walk with their children and affirm them in their sexuality. These Parent Connect meetings typically have people from the LGBTQ community on panels explaining how they came to terms with their sexuality and gender and how they live with that alongside their Christian faith as well as having breakout sessions in which the people on the panel then speak to the parents and the children about how they can do the same. So the question really becomes, where does Andy himself stand on this position? The other things that we've looked at, we've able to sort of tie up. We've sort of connected the dots A to B. But with this specific topic, I'm sort of lost. There's no definitive proof that he leans one way or the other, other than the ministry agreements that everyone that works for North Point must sign. What's a bit more confusing are the speakers that were chosen for this conference. I have no idea who actually chose them, but it is being hosted at North Point, and therefore it's sort of a sign of approval in some regards. I say this because there are other speakers that hold a more biblical position on this topic than the ones that are actually going to be speaking at the conference. So all of that to say, we still don't know where Andy stands on this. However, there is a hint of possibly knowing, and I do need to say this is totally third party. I have no idea the validity of the statements that are about to be made, but the reality is they were made, and as far as I know, they've never been addressed by Andy. I also think it's important to note that the North Point pastor that did reach out to me told me he was going to give me a more balanced perspective on this take and still has yet to do so. But that brings into the picture Ryan Visconti. 
Ryan Visconti is the lead pastor at Generation Church in Arizona. He had a tweet go viral on January 25th of 2023 in which he recounts a small group that he was in with Andy Stanley September 19th of 2019. The group had been gathered for a Q&A with Andy after a large conference that he had spoken at, and the subject eventually comes up about homosexuality. Ryan claims for the next hour and a half a very tense conversation took place. You can go read the tweet if you'd like, but this is what Ryan said on an interview with Remnant Radio. I have a sense from hearing him talk that he has a strong sense of compassion for lost people. I know that scripture, do not make it difficult for the Gentiles to come to faith, is one that really shapes a lot of his framework for reaching lost people. And it sounds like, based on what he said, he believes that there are people who are homosexual, that they cannot change. And that was one of the things we asked him about because he said they can't change. I, we asked him, what about 1 Corinthians 6, which says that is what some of you were. And he just doesn't believe it's the same as it is today, that there's something different about the dynamics today compared to Bible times. He has said that this issue is not like other sins. And so whatever he means by that, I can't be 100% sure, but it sounds like he has created a special framework for approaching this issue. Um, and I know that his heart is to reach people, but in the process of uh, going down this path of compassion, I think the lack of conviction has kept has um, allowed him to kind of go off the rails of biblical faithfulness in maybe with good intentions to reach people. Um, but it was really clear that he said things that were not biblical. And so here we are. The one question that has yet to be answered, though, is how would his late father, Dr. Charles Stanley, feel about all of this? While there's no way to actually know the answer to that question, we do have small indications of how Charles has spoken about it in the past. His approach is different from mine. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be good for both of us to be just alike. Thank you for growing up, being who you are. And I couldn't be more proud of you and Beck and how God has used up both of you all in the most wonderful way. Hmm. So I want to say thank you for being Andy. Well, I appreciate that. It is undeniable that Andy Stanley has had an enormous impact on the evangelical church over the last 25 years. With all of his resources, his books, his conference talks, all of this has deeply affected a number of different people. My hope in this video was to unpack for you the background of Andy Stanley, where he came from and where he is now, demonstrating that his views on the local church really haven't changed as much as they have developed and are more noticeable, showing how his view on scripture has really just been adapted to a changing culture in order to use different language to reach the same people he's always been trying to reach, the unchurched, and following his progression on cultural issues such as homosexuality and his attempt to reach a culture that needs to hear the gospel. To be clear, I disagree with a number of the ways that Andy chooses to go about running his ministry. And as such, the only thing I can say to do, and the same thing I would encourage you to do with any pastor in a local church, is this. Pray that they are faithful to Christ and his gospel. Pray that they preach the virgin birth, the perfect life lived by Christ, the actual death died on the cross in our place for our sins, the physical resurrection and the actual ascension, as well as Christ's inevitable return to judge the living and the dead. Because if we're not preaching that, what are we doing? And if there is any sin in their lives, that they repent and turn to Christ. 
So you don't have to be the first, you don't have to be the originator, you don't have to be the first to recognize it. But if you live like this, and you live as a student rather than a critic, odds are you'll recognize what you need to do when that opportunity comes along. And that's really been kind of the story of my life.